0: Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. Coming up, an encore presentation of How on Earth featuring happiness, black holes in distant galaxies, improved diagnoses of skin cancer, methane, and lasers. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Skin biopsies have been an effective tool for early detection of skin cancer. However, it comes with a price. Carving out small lumps of tissue for laboratory testing leaves patients with painful wounds that can take weeks to heal. In recent years, more aggressive testing of skin lesions has resulted in the number of biopsies growing around four times faster than the number of cancers detected, with about 30 benign lesions now biopsied for every one case of skin cancer that's found. Finding a less invasive way to detect skin cancer would be very valuable in reducing the impact of so many tests that end up being negative. Researchers at Stevens Institute of Technology are now developing a handheld device that could cut the rate of unnecessary biopsies in half and give dermatologists a fast and highly effective tool for cancer diagnostics. The team's device uses millimeter wave imaging, which is the same technology used in airport security scanners, to scan a patient's skin. Healthy tissue reflects millimeter wave rays differently than cancerous tissue, so it's theoretically possible to spot skin cancers by looking at contrasts in the rays reflected back from the skin. The researchers used special algorithms to quickly capture and analyze high-resolution images of even the tiniest mole or blemish. The researchers found their methods could accurately distinguish between benign and malignant lesions in just a few seconds. Their device could identify cancerous tissue with 97-98% to sensitivity and specificity, meaning a very low rate of false negatives and false positives, and is a rate comparable with medical laboratory diagnostic tools. This non invasive method could greatly reduce the need for biopsies. And since it is a fast and low cost device that's easy to use and as small as a cell phone, it could be widely used anywhere, not just in hospital settings, making skin cancer diagnostics more available in areas that are underserved for healthcare. The paper titled Real-time, high-resolution, millimeter-wave imaging for in vivo skin cancer diagnosis appeared in the journal Scientific Reports.
1: A laser technology based on research that won Boulder scientist Jan Hall the Nobel Prize is now helping spot an invisible contributor to greenhouse gas. It's methane leaks from gas pipelines and wells. The new technology that spots these leaks involves a frequency comb laser that can reveal a color spectrum unique to each gas it detects. For instance, a beautiful rainbow in the sky shows the spectral signature of water. Methane's spectrum is more reds and browns. This new frequency comb laser can spot things like that, says a developer of the technology, CU Boulder Mechanical Engineering Professor Greg Riker.
2: What makes a frequency comb really a unique tool is that it's a laser that emits not just one color of light, like a, you know your laser pointer is red or blue, it emits hundreds of thousands or even millions of colors of light all through the infrared. Um, and then when it comes back, it's imprinted with this absorption fingerprint of the different gases in the, in the atmosphere.
1: Scientists set this new comb laser up like a camera on a 50-foot tower to operate remotely, which reduces costs. One camera can monitor miles of terrain. Most of all, Riker says, it's accurate.
2: It's an incredibly powerful technology because it can measure so many different gases with such high precision.
1: Only methane leaks that can be detected can get fixed. The laser's developers predict their new technology will be especially valuable for spotting big leaks and plugging them. 80%
0: of the emissions are coming from the 20% of biggest leaks.
1: That's Robbie Wright, VP of Long Path Technologies, which teamed up with CU Boulder to develop this technology.
0: If we can reduce the rate at which we're dumping methane in the atmosphere right now, today, within 20 years, you'll start to see a very good improvement.
1: Two dozen of these methane monitoring lasers are already in operation. The technology developers hope more will follow. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. It comes
0: Next up, we take The Wayback Machine for an encore presentation of How on Earth Features from 10 years ago, June 19, 2012. First, Susan Moran talks with an author of the book Engineering Happiness, A New Approach for Building a Joyful Life. And then Jim Pullen, talks with University of Colorado astronomer Jason Glenn about black holes in distant galaxies. Even though this is from a decade ago, happiness is still relevant today, and of course, black holes are timeless. So let us join hosts Susan Moran and Beth Bartell.
3: I'm right. right. You're listening to How on Earth, I'm Susan Moran. You may think the key to happiness lies in love, winning the lottery, or more vacation days, but what it really comes down to is math, a mathematical formula to be precise. At least that's according to a recently published book. It's called... Engineering Happiness, A New Approach for Building a Joyful Life. It's written by two business and economics professors, Manel Balsells from the University of Pampau Fabra in Barcelona and Rakesh Sarin from the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Sarin's on the phone from California to share some of their and others' findings in the fields of behavioral and social sciences. Rakesh, welcome to How on Earth.
4: Happy to be with you, Susan.
3: So I'm curious, you're two business and economics professors. What brought you to this field of happiness?
4: Yes, so uh, we uh, have been looking at uh, questions of uh, how should people choose uh, one business plan over the other or investment plan uh, over the other and then we got to thinking that people choose a over b because presumably a will make them happier uh, than b and so over the past 10 years Susan we have examined and analyzed data and evidence from all over the world uh, to come up with a set of laws that govern our happiness so and, but, mm-hmm. no go ahead uh, yeah so the thing is that, yes, our background and culture make us see uh, things differently, make us perceive things differently. But the laws of happiness uh, are universal, and they apply to uh, every, everyone.
3: <laughs> so before we get into the laws, I need to ask you, are you a happier man after researching and yeah. writing your book?
4: <laughs> yes, <laughs> because I practiced on uh, uh, some of the things. Basic idea is frankly very simple. Uh, these equations give why certain things happen. Uh, but the basic idea is to, uh, to, uh, improve your positive emotional states and reduce the negatives <laughs> and so it, we, we call it happiness seismogram and we measure happiness much like energy is measured by calories uh, we measure it uh, by uh, happy dawns so yes when i notice that certain activities uh, such as uh, getting stuck in traffic in los angeles uh, uh, make road my rage heaven down
3: <laughs> so i'm curious um you say the secret lies in this math formula. Lay it out for us. So,
4: so the thing is this. That one logical implication of these laws is that happiness equals reality minus shifting expectations. So as we try to improve our reality by working harder, so we can make more money, buy a bigger house, or drive a fancier car, our expectations also shift. So we are happy for a little while, but soon enough, expectations catch up with reality. So this is why it is no wonder that uh, researchers have found that American millionaires living in mega mansions are barely happier uh, than Maasai warriors of Kenya who live in huts. So we have to seek happiness elsewhere. Uh, now, Now, one implication of this equation will be that in our life we follow what we call a crescendo strategy, less to more.
3: Crescendo strategy
4: yes because Mm -hmm. you see you want a gap between reality and expectation because happiness is relative Uh, so this strategy okay let's talk about summer is coming people may be going on vacation on a small scale we could say that on a vacation rather than immediately visiting the most spectacular museum or historic site save those experiences for the end of your trip but it's more than vacation as a philosophy of life You can work to organize the chapters in your book of life from less to more. So in raising children, for example, do not give them too much too fast, right? Because otherwise expectations will go up too high and it's hard to keep up with that. So once you get the idea, you begin to see the applications everywhere. Now, similarly, we talk about basic goods. And the idea there is simple. So you talk about basic goods? basic goods mm-hmm. uh, an example will be let's say food you know you eat uh, when you whenever you are hungry each day you enjoy your meal so the idea there is again think about the equation reality minus shifting expectations for these basic goods our expectations do not shift and they are also not susceptible to social comparisons because our expectation in modern society with all the advertisements and everything around us uh, is formed often through uh, all the messages we keep getting. Uh, so uh, what happens in basic goods, we divided them in three categories, the needs of the body, which is uh, basically food, health, uh, uh, shelter, uh, sleep, right. uh, and needs of the heart and the needs of the mind. And these are the things like spending time uh, with people you love, your friends and family, uh, listening to music you, you like kind of things.
3: Things that don't that necessarily cost much.
4: They don't cost much and they give you uh, happiness consistently, right? So the thing is, it is not about that equation. (laughs) We do not mean that you plug it in and you will be happier, but it gives you, begins to open up many ideas when you look at the equation, which is supported by, you know, data from all over the world uh, that uh, I can now uh, make choices uh, that will. Uh, that will bring me a happier life. So so I want to stop you for
3: a sec. Just the crescendo strategy, it sounds kind of axiomatic, what our parents have told us probably since we were quite young. (laughs) You know, don't go for the ice cream now, hold off. But this is a science show after all. Tell me, what's the evidence for that being more successful in terms of bringing you more happiness in the end?
4: strategy, frankly, uh, is, in our terms, is a theorem, <laughs> in the sense that if you maximize the happiness, which is the equation I gave you, uh, this is what the optimal plan turns out to be. Now, what is the evidence? You know, we have done some small experiments, and we have found, uh, I was giving you vacation example, uh, say, for example, in uh, Croatia, there are two uh, monasteries, uh, uh, Krika and Plitvich. Two monasteries? Krika and Plitwis <laughs> And 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 people who go from less to more, krika to plitz, enjoy more and those who go in the opposite direction because of their schedule or whatever, they, of course, enjoy the with the most amazing one. But when it comes to heart they will say, oh, it's just so-so because their expectations have uh, have gone up. So, uh, so you know, empirical uh, support is there. Uh, but uh, as I said, the, Im- the empirical support and scientific experiments and the data, we really uh, look at to support the laws. And from the laws comes out certain uh, certain findings, and one finding is the uh, crescendo uh, strategy in life. You see, actually, uh, some organizations are already doing it. For example, uh, for call centers or service employees, the, if you give people more frequent promotions, ah. of course, associated with achieving some well-defined milestone or goal, that will improve... Uh, employee satisfaction, uh, because that's a crescendo strategy, and few organizations are beginning to do that. <laughs> uh, so, so there is a support uh, that this strategy uh, works.
3: So, some would say, and I know there have been gazillion books written about uh, happiness over the centuries, Dalai Lama not the least of them, um, but isn't happiness itself kind of overrated? I know some would say in the Buddhist, and I mean, you're from the Hindu tradition, that right. it's more about waking up and being present. And some of this sounds like you're getting to that anyway. But why, why should we have such focus on happiness?
4: Right. So because, you know, happy people tend to be healthier. They live longer and they have better social relationships. And happy employees are more productive. But nevertheless, I'll agree with you, happiness is not the only goal. But the thing is, you could have a meaningful life, but it can it can be also a happier, happier life, and we have to understand that in our definition, happiness is not some few amazing moments in life, and those are okay. We are not against those, but happiness is having a stable. Uh, stable, uh, peaceful, content life, because that is how you will maximize area under the curve. So so a stable, content
3: life, not just uh, binging at the moment. Well, we've got to close it at that. I so appreciate you coming on the show. That was Rakesh Sarin, co-author of the book, Engineering Happiness, A New Approach for Building a Joyful Life. Thanks so much.
5: You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bartel. Active galactic nuclei, or AGNs for short, are vast black holes at the centers of galaxies. And by vast, we mean gigantic, as in the mass of a million suns, or even as many as 10 billion suns. Never mind that all that mass is crammed into a volume smaller than our solar system. But even such mighty entities pale against the galaxies they lie within. With as many as 10,000 billion suns, surely galaxies hardly notice these space-and-time-bending singularities in their tummies. Regardless, the Aegeans do seem to hold sway over their galaxies. CU Boulder astronomer Jason Glenn is part of an international team that is beginning to sort out why. He recently chatted with KGNU's Jim Pullen. Let's listen in.
2: We need to understand how it is that galaxies like the Milky Way got here. We know what the Milky Way looks like now, but we know that the universe, when it was very young, was quite different from that. The question is how did galaxies form from a homogeneous universe of hot plasma? So now we have galaxies, we have stars, we have planets, and people have evolved. It's a very fundamental question. But The theoretical understanding of how galaxies form is not mature at all. We have some of the basics right, but many of the details are missing and they're quite important. One piece of this is that we now know that apparently all massive galaxies have supermassive black holes at their centers. And the number of stars in the galaxies, or at least in their centers, seems to be correlated to the size of that supermassive black hole. Supermassive black hole may sound large, but it's very small compared to the size of a galaxy. What one would call the radius of a black hole for a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy is sort of the size of the inner solar system. So it's tiny. Galaxies are many, many times larger than that. How can it be that what happens on the scale, the size scale of a supermassive black hole, or say the solar system, could be correlated to what's happening on the galaxy on the scale of the galaxy? It's a big question. Since the the correlation between the mass of the supermassive black holes and the number of stars was observed, theoreticians have put forth a number of theories to test it. None of them have been able to be ruled out very successfully yet because the observations are difficult. However, our observations provide some of the first direct evidence that it's possible for the supermassive black holes to limit the growth of stars in the galaxies and produce the observed correlation. What our finding was was that galaxies that had the most active nuclei, the most accretion onto the supermassive black hole, or the fastest growth of the supermassive black hole, seemed to have lower rates of star formation than galaxies that had smaller black holes. So we identified galaxies in which there were active nuclei, there were supermassive black holes from their X-ray emission. And then we used our new observations from the Herschel Space Observatory to figure out what the star formation rates were in those galaxies. What we found is that the star formation rates on average for the galaxies that did not have bright active nuclei was about 215 solar masses worth of interstellar gas per year being turned into stars. For those galaxies that had bright active galactic nuclei, there wasn't zero star formation, but it was about 65 solar masses per year which indicates that as the supermassive black holes grow and get more luminous, eventually they shut off the star formation. And they don't turn it off. They just reduce it to a much lower rate.
6: In the uh, center of galaxies, can the black holes be
2: directly observed? Yes. So the black holes cannot be observed. They're far too small for us to see with any observational capabilities that we have now. So we have to infer their presence and usually the inference is through gravitational interaction of matter around them. In the cases of these galaxies, there are so-called active galactic nuclei, active because they're undergoing accretion now and they shine brightly. So what is happening is that there are very large black holes, a million or a billion solar masses in the centers of the galaxies. And if there's sufficient material between the stars and around the black holes, then some of it can fall into the black hole. That's what accretion is. As it falls in, it orbits and gas rubs up against other gas and it gets heated and it emits radiation. So we can't see the black hole, but what we see is material spiraling around it. And it heats up so much, in some cases, that it emits X-rays. And so we observe X-rays from the active galactic nuclei in the regions right around the black holes. That's how we know that there are supermassive black holes in these galaxies.
6: I guess it's probably difficult to observe the stars as well. And this is where the instrumentation comes in. Can you explain how you collected the da- and used the data?
2: Absolutely, so star formation is also very difficult to observe and the reason is that stars form as molecular clouds gravitationally collapse. So there are molecular clouds uh, throughout the Milky Way and a lot in the centers of galaxies especially early in the universe. When the clouds collapse and form stars the radiation that the stars emit is mostly optical and ultraviolet light, so visible and ultraviolet, but the light can't get out and be observed because the molecular clouds also have interstellar dust in them. And dust absorbs and scatters light from the stars. So star formation occurs embedded in molecular clouds and we can't directly see it. But we know it happens. And the reason is that when the dust, the interstellar dust absorbs radiation, it heats up. And when it heats up, it glows. And the glowing is in the infrared and submillimeter part of the spectrum. So although we can't see the young stars themselves, in most cases, we see the glowing from the dust, and we can infer that there's star formation occurring there. So the way we measured the amount of star formation occurring in the galaxies was to measure the amount of submillimeter radiation, reprocessed starlight, reprocessed by interstellar dust.
6: And when you say that there's a correlation between the size of the black holes in the galaxy center and the star mass, do you mean the size of individual stars or do you mean the rate of star formation or the number of stars or all of the above?
2: That's a very good question. So the correlation is actually between the mass of the supermassive black hole and the velocities of the stars in the centers of galaxies, or their bulges, which is a probe of how much matter there is in the center of the galaxies. In the centers of galaxies, the mass is dominated by the stars. So what I mean when I say the mass in stars, I mean the number of stars, and there's a range of masses. Not all stars have the same mass, but it's basically the number of stars. So there's a correlation between the mass of the supermassive black hole and how many stars there are in the center of the galaxy.
6: Can you explain the physical mechanism that has been proposed uh, to explain that correlation?
2: Oh, that's a really hard question. Without some sort of negative feedback, it's very hard to explain. The correlation was observed over a decade ago, and multiple theoretical explanations have been put forth. At this point, most of them have been plausible because they don't make predictions that we can test observationally. We're just starting to get at that now. There are likely a couple different, a few different possibilities. One is that when we have accretion into black holes, The material glows and we see x-rays, but there are also jets that shoot out. They send radiation out into interstellar and intergalactic space. And that gas coming out of the quasar can expel gas from the host galaxy where stars would form, and so it can prevent more star formation, meaning when the black hole starts to form, it can shut off star formation. The more massive the black hole, the more effective that process is, and you could have a correlation between the mass of the black hole and the number of stars in the galaxy. There are still major questions to answer. For example, it seems that now we can show that when black holes get massive enough, they turn off or they slow down star formation. We need to see how tight that relationship is. But this doesn't explain at all how it happens. So now we have to observe many more objects and we have to refine our observations, observe galaxies in detail, compare those to theoretical predictions, and see if we can figure out the mechanism by which the supermassive black holes quench star formation.
5: That was CU Boulder astronomer Jason Glenn talking with How on Earth's Jim Pullen about how black holes affect galaxies. That research was published in the May 10th issue of Nature. You can learn more by visiting CASA.colorado.edu. That's C A S A.colorado.edu.
3: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Beth Bartell and was engineered with by Jim Pullen. Our theme music was written and produced
5: by Josh Cutler. Additional music this week from The Beatles, Nina Simone, and The Turtles.
3: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions
5: or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Susan Moran.